Okay, we've uh, begun a series directly related to the three books that we're reading as a congregation. This is also in anticipation of discussions about the future of the D.C. in terms of our priorities, resources, and the gifting of our congregation, both for ourselves and our public ministry. We're reading the Benedict Option, uh, Strangers in a Strange Land by the Archbishop of Philadelphia, and Out of the Ashes, uh, uh, a little more on the evangelical side. Last week I spoke about the changes in the American culture and the American churches that have taken place in the last 70 years. I was not trying to give a pessimistic statement. I was trying to be descriptive. There's a difference between uh, making a claim that all of these things are bad. They're not. But they certainly are changes. And almost all changes have good aspects and bad aspects. So it's important to keep that in mind. So we went went from melting pot to pluralism as a culture uh, that has good and and negative aspects. We went from rugged to radical individualism. We've gone from modernity to post-modernity. The truth is we haven't gone from one to the other in any of these. We've just added one alongside the other, and that's part of what the cultural battle is about. We've extended adolescence and delayed maturity among uh, young people. We've created new perspectives on marriage and sexuality. We've moved from the family to the government as the primary institution that will help in time of need and control what's going on. Uh, The media spin has moved in a place where we have talking heads and very little critical thinking and clear understanding of what's going on. There is a rise of secularism around the world and globalism where people think in terms of international and not so much local. Uh, There is a humanistic social justice. This is related to moving away from a religious-based culture to a secular-based culture. Most Americans still engage in what you and I would call Judeo-Christian values. You see that in in the flood in Houston. People caring for each other, helping each other, coming together. In the past, it was done because we were all created in the image of God. And now it's because we have a common humanity. As people move away from religious explanations, some of the behavior remains, but it has a different explanation for its, for its cause. And then we have moved to where any speech that is disliked, instead of being labeled as free speech that we don't like, it's being labeled as hate speech. In the church, there have also been a number of things. I talked about these last week again. I'm just going to list them. We went from denominationalism that ultimately began to distrust each other to a non-denominationalism, which largely means that we're ignorant of our differences and we have kind of an eclectic faith. Uh, The church has focused mostly on church growth and evangelism over discipleship. That has implications. Uh, We have moved to a seeker-friendly worship, which is much more compatible for people who are uh, without a spiritual history or are, are new in their spiritual history, but it again works against uh, discipleship. 
We have multiple Bible translations, which allows people not to think about what is most accurate, but what do I like best in, uh, in Bibles. Um, the charismatic movement awakened people to the fact that God was still present and active in our lives, but also brought about the idea that God talks to us directly, and therefore who really needs the Bible, and even my explanation of the Bible is coming from what God is telling me it is. We've got entrepreneurial clergy. People just need a calling and some kind of ability to draw a crowd, and we somehow think that that uh, validates that, that ministry. We have a business model of the church. Our apologetics are mostly about what's wrong with the other guy and what's wrong in politics. And we have a very weak religious media, very difficult to get clear information of what's going on around the world among the various denominations because the, the Christian media simply uh, has also turned to uh, entertainment and evangelism and prophecy. You know, So what I want to do today is uh, talk more about uh, not the storm that's coming but the idea of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation in a context of a culture and a church that is much more biblically oriented is a different dynamic. I recall Dennis Prager once talking about uh, his parents didn't teach him much about anything <laughs> because they were kind of isolated. And, uh, but, but they really did. They did in the home and they did in the synagogue. Uh, and his friends who were, he was playing with all had similar homes and similar synagogues, right? And so the reinforcement was there in the community. I grew up in a neighborhood where if you did something wrong, any person on the block would punish you. You could get spanked by any adult on the block because everybody had the same rules and it was that kind of homogeneous framework. We don't live in that anymore, right? So now what's happening is children are having to be raised in a context where there's a multiplicity of options and voices, both in the culture and in the fragmentation of the church, so that it's very difficult to make any argument that is a shared argument. I'll talk about that with an example that happened this week in a moment. So I want to talk about the implications of a changing culture and a changing church world for ourselves, which leads up to why the Benedict Option is, uh, is being suggested in, in, in these books. First of all, let me talk about spiritual formation. I've talked about this before, I want to remind you. Judaism and Christianity are faiths and religions which demand that the faith be learned. They are literate faiths. We pull out the Torah scroll, we pull out the Gospels, these are in Hebrew and Greek, and these documents are the foundation of those two faiths. And those documents require that you are literate, and those documents require that you learn, that you are trained and instructed. In other words, you don't get this by osmosis. It's not you say the magic words and the Spirit of God comes in and transforms you. The Spirit of God comes in to transform you, but there's a process to it. And so these are faiths that have to be learned and passed on to our children and to our converts. Both these faiths, Judaism and Christianity, acknowledge that at times 
and for various reasons, the spiritual formation does not come to completion. And that results in three different kinds of spiritual formation that we have to deal with. The first one I simply call spiritual formation. It is the training of a child in the faith, primarily in the home, by the parents, so that the full development, physical development, cognitive development, cultural development, and religious development is syncretized as a whole, bringing them into full integration with an identity as a believer. Now, this is the commandment that God gave to Israel in the Torah. You shall diligently teach these things to your children. And it is confirmed in the, the newer covenant when Paul says, Fathers, bring up your children in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. So the Bible began with a foundation of spiritual formation that is in the home by the parents. Now, in addition to that, Judaism serves as a light to the world and to bring people to the knowledge of God. And of course, in the Great Commission, that is the, the primary uh, thrust of um, evangelism and missions in Christianity, the idea is that the gospel is to go forth to the Jew and to the Gentile to bring them to a knowledge of God, which means there will be people who didn't grow up in those homes and would become converts. And since among the Gentiles, particularly, there was more and more a likelihood of the initial groups coming in as converts, most of the New Testament focuses not on raising of the children in the faith, the assumption is they would have gotten that from the Torah and the prophets, but adding this dimension of transformation, which is what happens to a convert. Transformation is the discipleship of a convert who has already been formed physically, socially, maybe even religiously in another faith, and that syncretized Formation can't happen again. They now have to be transformed so that the spiritual truth and the word of God is now re is introduced into them in such a way that it permeates all of them. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says to the Romans in that idea. Transformation of the mind is accomplished by an intensive process of learning the faith through relational networks within the congregation, bringing about what we call conversion. Okay. Now, Christians have a tendency to focus only on conversion, even of their children, and not in formation of the children. And this has done uh, some damage to us. Then there is a third group that I call remedials, the Bible talks about this as well. People who, when the time comes that they should be able to teach others, they need to be taught the basics all over again. Uh, remediation. I call this reformation. So we have people that are being formed, people that are being transformed, and people that are being reformed because they didn't get what they were supposed to get. It's a remedial process that must take place when a child or a convert has not received the appropriate or complete foundational spiritual formation. And for the most part, the American church has 
created an entire set of generations that were malformed and need to be reformed. And it's because of those changes I talked about. Uh, multiple doctrines, multiple uh, approaches, non-denominationalism, kind of the hometown buffet. I'll take what I want from the faith, and I don't want that, and I want this. So we have kind of Jesus for one kind of things, which we all know about since the, since the 60s. So uh, both Judaism and Christianity address these in somewhat different ways, but they do that. So for example, tonight will be the Chabad telethon. One of the things that Chabad is known for is taking tefillin and other things and having them at train stations and airports and places so that if somebody's coming by, they say, are you Jewish? Yeah. Have you ever laid tefillin? Have you ever prayed as a Jew? No. Well, let us show you how. To draw Jews, secular Jews, back into the faith. And they do good in taking care of drug addicts and other people with their Chabad houses. And in that, Gentiles come to them and they say, do you know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So they do that with an outreach kind of approach. Now, they really have borrowed that approach from the parachurch world of Christianity. But they then draw them into the synagogues. The parachurch world largely doesn't draw people into the churches. Uh, and the churches have become more parachurch-like rather than disciple centers, uh, to coin a phrase. So, um, what happens is, Judaism and Christianity both have to raise their children. Judaism has done that somewhat better than we have. Uh, transform converts, we are somewhat weak at that, and reform those who have been malformed in the process. And we have not done a... a a very good job of that. But all of a sudden now, the culture has shifted and the church has shifted as well. So, I want to talk about the challenge of the implications of that for us and for our children. And I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm not going to read this whole section. I'm going to leave the actual parable out because the explanation of the parable includes it. So I'm simply going to pick it up at verse 10. Though, if you're looking at it, it begins at verse 1. The disciples came to him, to Jesus, and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, some of you remember a long time ago, we had a series on the teachings of the Master. I haven't done the second section yet. The first one was on the public teachings of Jesus. And the second one is going to be on the private teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught the public. He also taught his disciples the content was somewhat different. They picked up on it and said, why are you teaching them in parables? Now the standard Christian answer is, I teach in parables so they'll understand. And if you listen to most pastors, they'd say, why did Jesus talk in parables? Jesus spoke in parables so people would understand. That's just the opposite of why Jesus spoke in parables. And Jesus tells us himself. Jesus said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand... 
In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which is, you will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will keep on seeing, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you that many prophets uh, and righteous men have desired to see what you see and didn't see it. Hear what you hear and didn't see it. And then he explains the parable. So Jesus is saying, I want you to understand what this is about. God has sent Israel into diaspora. For a short time, after the 70 years Babylonian captivity, a remnant of them have been brought back into the land. And in the fullness of time, Jesus comes to, to reach the remnant that Isaiah talks about. This is why Paul says, even at the present time, there is a partial blindness, a partial hardening of Israel until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So rather than Jesus come to present himself as the Messiah... So that Israel would come into its kingdom and all would be accomplished without us. God kept them somewhat in the dark. And then after the ministry of Jesus, that remnant was also pushed back into the diaspora as it is till this day. And then the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus, as he paid the atonement price, would now go out into the world to the Jew first and the Gentile bringing the good news that the kingdom is at hand, and then when God regathers Israel, he will regather the believers from the nations and all of that. So if he was keeping them from knowing, but he was telling his disciples because they were the remnant that needed to know, and they were blessed in that. So now he's going to tell them what the parable is about. And we'll pick that up really quick. He says... Here then is the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Remember, the sower sowed beside the road and the birds came and ate the seed and it didn't grow. So he tells us that. Then he says, the one on whom the rocky seed was sown the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no firm root in himself. He is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Then he says, the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he bears fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. So among those who actually hear the word of God, receive it, and come to maturity so that they bear fruit, even there's an unevenness there. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirtyfold. That last group are the disciples who come to maturity. That's what Jesus was talking about. But there are three things that get in the way of the word being effective in other people's lives. They are 
Satan, the evil one who prevents the word from entering the heart. Difficult to explain this, but we must remember that the word and the spirit of God are connected. The word alone does not transform. The word works with the spirit. The spirit seldom works independent of the word. But always works consistent with the word. But the word without the spirit doesn't do. People are able to be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because the the words are spiritually discerned. Satan blocks that. Second one is affliction and persecution. Because of the word. This causes someone to initially rejoice in their salvation. Ooh, Jesus died for me. I like that. But they ultimately, because of affliction, difficulties in life, or persecution because of the word. Difficulties in life are trying to live biblical lives when the circumstances of the world are working against you. So where's God? Or persecution. If you're going to act that way, we're going to treat you this way. Well, God wants me to be happy. In other words, affliction and persecution will also cause someone to stumble. Now, the Bible uses the word stumble here. We, the translated fall away. And the reason for that is it's very difficult to understand how the Bible uses the word stumble. Two ways of stumbling. So let's assume you're walking on uh, one of those narrow ways at the Grand Canyon. Have you guys been to the Grand Canyon? You know, they have those... Donkeys that walk on it. Very narrow. So you're walking on that thing and your foot kind of slips and you drop and you hit the ground and you're hanging on. You haven't fallen off into the canyon, but you trip. You got to stop. You got to get yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. Sounds like a song, right? So there is stumbling so as not to fall. Just stumblings. Okay, Paul says about Israel, they have stumbled, but not so as to fall. But there are people who stumble and go down off the cliff and fall away. Okay, So both of those are talked about in that context. We're all going to stumble at some point. But stumbling so as to fall is what's going on here. And they do it because the circumstances, God can't love me if this is happening to me. Or persecution... Uh, I'm not going to go through that kind of pain for the name of Jesus. Okay? The third one, or the last one, is worry about the world, the cares of the world, or the deceitfulness of uh, riches. Now that one is different. Okay? One of the issues there is the idea that uh, we think we need to be secure in order to follow God. I want to talk about all of these in a little more detail. Um, the first two I've already given you a pretty good explanation, but let me read what I've put here so that you have that. The biblical worldview declares that God is the creator. He's engaged in his purpose of salvation, and in all things, God is working good to those who are called to his purpose. According to the scriptures, there is an evil one who opposes God. He's engaged in an attempt to thwart God's purpose. He seeks to devour whomever he may, and he is the God of this age or this world. 
He has angels and men who do his bidding, but they appear as angels of light. I'm really here to help you. And he seeks to twist the word of God and sow discord among the brethren. In that way, he annuls the word of God in the hearts of some. Very important that we not get caught into the belief that there's a religious area and there's a secular area. We are now entering the no-God zone. And as we enter into the no-God zone, we're also entering into the no-Satan zone. Not true. The spiritual background is always going on. Ultimately, it is not a big battle. God has all power and Satan only has permission. (laughs) Right, But the idea is that that's going on and children who are not raised with that knowledge but are raised with a more secular mindset are simply going to think that that is superstition. So uh, the Bible says that we must not succumb to this notion of a secular reality, this no-God zone. We must acknowledge God in all our ways, practicing the presence of God so that he will direct our steps, our steps. This means knowing and doing the scriptures, memorizing and acting according to the truth. The Bible has commandments about what is eaten, what is worn, all those things. Judaism and Christianity have enhanced that, sometimes in bad ways, sometimes in good ways. But the idea is that there is no part of your life that God is not involved in. Uh, and, And that's important to keep in mind. Uh, If we take the view that the Bible isn't relevant to that part of my life, in that sense, we have the, 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 the wayside seed. Uh, affliction and persecution. I already talked about this, but I want to remind you that those who live by the word have always been afflicted and persecuted. This affliction can be light or heavy. It can be episodic, as with Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, Right? Uh, or and you will deny me, uh, or chronic as with Paul. Everywhere I go, I get shipwrecked, thrown into jail, right? I'd be opposed. Or Job, right? But there is affliction of circumstances that make the word seem impractical and brings a pushback from family and friends, society and government. Light affliction and persecution comes in the form of mocking, joking, and ridicule. They simply dismiss our faith and our practices as quaint, outdated, or simply not necessary. Heavy persecution is direct discrimination or punitive actions which are imposed because you are a believer and because of your behavior of obedience in the word. And around the world, our fellow Christians and Jews are experiencing that. We have not experienced that level of persecution in this culture, though people believe that that may be coming. We must be careful that we are actually following scripture and not an inappropriate conscience that misses the weightier matters of the commands. An example of this, I saw again this week, some lady who didn't want to make a cake for a wedding she didn't think was appropriate. Um, uh, The truth is she makes all kinds of cakes for things that are not appropriate. But she's claiming it's her conscience. That is a malinformed conscience not based on biblical text. Um, and, and, and she either needs to get consistent, which means she'll probably not be able to be a, a baker, or she's going to have to be wiser in that process. 
This is where Satan has taken the word from the hearts of many of these Christians. Many Christians are bothered by things that are not directly related to the commandments for other people. Um, and they don't obey them themselves. So, we get kind of false doctrines such as all sins are equal. Not true. If you look at the biblical sins, they all have differing punishments. Differing punishments means they're not equal. They're all short of the glory of God, but they're not equal. Holiness commandments are universal. The holiness commandments are only given to us. We're not to give that which is holy to unbelievers. But we force unbelievers to act holy, which is our job. Uh, and, And in doing so, we give a false witness. Now, We're supposed to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You've heard me say this before. We tend to be dumb as an ox and like a bull in a china shop. We've got to learn to be better in that. So that's the satanic part of the battle. What about the worry of the world and the cares regarding times? Uh, The worry of the world is actually cares about the age. That's literally what the translation should be. This refers to circumstances and issues at hand that give us the idea that we must adjust temporarily and will return to full obedience and instruction at a later date. This is conforming to the world, the culture, the spirit of the times, or the present situation. There is a tendency for us to think, I have to, I have to uh, adjust to this, and what we end up doing is compromise. And then the other one is the deceitfulness of uh, wealth. This is a concern about what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. Jesus spoke of this and said, don't make that your priority. Your father knows you need these. Seek first the kingdom of God. These things will be added to you. But this culture is permeated with the idea that you can't get married until you're financially secure, which for most people doesn't happen until you're retired, (laughs) if you retire, and anybody can become financially insecure at any moment. That is not the basis of, we're chasing a false illusion in that that notion. Um, And the idea that that wealth will secure us is taught against all through the scriptures. Our source is the Father. Now that doesn't mean that we let go and let God. Okay? Just bring your bills down to the church and God will pay for them. Right? That's not what it's talking about. But it means that the priority is always to obey God in kingdom priorities and not engage in the temporal chase after things that take us away from, the, from kingdom, li- kingdom living. So three categories of threat exist for ourselves and our children. Satan seeks to make the word sterile by blindness and various interpretations, making the single path no longer illuminated. The affliction and persecution of us by both religious and secular people and governments can cause us to fear man rather than fear God. And the cares and concerns about the present issues and security causes can make the kingdom things a lower priority. These threats push us towards falling away assimilation and rejection of our faith. And the pathway of assimilation leaves us with three things. I want to do these real quick. Three things that will happen, and this is how you'll know you're on that road. First one is double-mindedness. 
You're focused on the word and the world and you begin to become unstable. I don't know what God wants. I don't I got to do I gotta, uh, that kind of thing. We become unstable in all our ways. Compromise. Okay, I'll compromise here. That'll take care of the immediate problem. Uh, and I'll keep the appearance of a kingdom uh, and achieve the goal of the culture. A lot of people have what they claim is a Christian home. There's nothing Christian about their home. Stumbling, tripping over what you did not foresee when you compromise, and then finding that in order to cover that up, you have to compromise more. That pushes for a greater compromise, and repentance becomes harder and harder, because repentance becomes more and more costly in in our change. So, the goal here is for us to see that the biblical change in the culture and the biblical change in the church was prophesied. The Bible, again, I'm not saying we're in the last times, but the Bible tells us that the world is going to become a certain way as we get towards the end, and the people of God are going to largely fall away for certain reasons. So let me give you one of those passages um, so that you're aware of it. I want to talk more about uh, those issues next week. But in Second Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3, I'm sorry. Second Timothy chapter 3, the apostle writes, but realize this, That in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. That's people who blow up in anger and do violence. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But they'll hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid these people. Now, you would think that this is describing the world. It's not. It's describing the people of God who are becoming assimilated into a world that's already in that condition. And we're beginning to see that as as we go. So we're moving into a culture change that is more and more dismissive and hostile to our faith. And our obedience and our identity in Messiah is going to become a laughingstock. This will continue to get worse. There may be some ebbs and flows, but that's the direction it's going. And we must continue in what we have learned and make sure that we know the scriptures. That's Paul's argument here when he talks about this. He says, verse 10, you have followed my patience, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, Such has happened to me. Now look at verse 13. Evil men and imposters, the phony Christians, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. You only become convinced of them by living them. Knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, he's talking to Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about childhood evangelism. He's talking about coming to maturity so that at the revelation of Christ, you will receive the salvation that God is bringing. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There is no way around it. Spiritual formation is critical to our survival uh, as, as, a, as a household, as a church, and as a people. Now next week what I want to do is talk about those primary institutions. And then I'll be done with the background stuff on this. And then we'll talk about the Benedict option and what do we do about it. But let's go to the Lord in prayer.